The Sports Career Podcast, episode 287. What qualities do you need to be an investor in the sports industry? Hello Sports Achiever and welcome back to another episode of the Sports Crib Podcast. I'm your host Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in data and also sport industry investments. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your interests and needs. But before I talk about this week's podcast special guest, Have you got a copy of my sports industry directory, which has over 500 companies in the sports industry in eight different sectors? This ebook will be a tool for you with regards to reaching out and connecting with today's companies in the sports industry. So if you want your copy, go to education to sport forward slash SID and get your copy today. Now, getting back to today's episode, this week's podcast special guest is Daniel Bernard. Daniel has a fascinating sports career journey, and he is an entrepreneur, sport industry investor, and the founder and chairman of Redwood International Sports, which is a company that specializes in data services for businesses and in a variety of international sports. So for that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Daniel as a podcast special guest on the show. And that's when today's episode, Daniel will share his sports career journey and explain to you the qualities you need to be an investor in the sports industry. Daniel, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. Please you share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Ed, thank you very much. Um, so, well, I mean, I've been working in sports for about 22 years now, I think. I had a short job, actually, uh, straight out of university working uh, in Gibraltar uh, for one of the uh, offshore gaming companies. Uh, but that was a short stint. So I don't really count that. I was there for just seven, eight months in a marketing role that didn't really suit me. But majorly started, I think, 2000, end of 2000, 2001, where I got a job in broadcast and media here in Israel. I moved to Israel when I was about 24 and shortly after got a, a job in broadcast and media. Um, and that was great. I mean, it was right at the bottom level. Um, I learned a hell of a lot. Uh, and working in sports uh, media is a wonderful introduction to the sports industry because you get a good overview of the whole process of a game of sport, the production, the broadcast of it, the engagement that people have with that sport. And so that was wonderful. And then 2004 um, got a big um, a big leap when I set up uh, Redwood, what became over time Redwood International Sports, uh, which is looking at uh, sports in a much more analytical way. We provide uh, high level data and stats for various verticals. And that's been really my anchor till today. Uh, so it's been going coming on for almost 18 years now, which is blows me away when I think about it. To be honest, moved away from the CEO role now for almost eight years. Uh, some I have a CEO who's far better than I am to manage Redwood uh, for what Redwood needs these days. Uh, I moved away in 2015 when I was um, uh, asked to set up sports betting platforms for emerging markets. And that was about 2015. And so that was almost like a new career for me. And that was exciting. And, uh, and moved into sports tech investment about two, roughly about two years ago. And been doing that since then. Wow. What a reply. Firstly, I started my sort of internship at Sky Sports and I can connect with you when I had that internship of understand the process. And I want to go back in time of when you said that, like, how important is it to understand a process of how sports work before finding that, should we say in commas, dream job, because I learned so much at Sky of how things are done on ground and it makes me a better presenter now. So I'd just love to dig deep on that point or reflecting from your experience when you started out. I think it's absolutely critical. You know, so many people grow up and and say, I want to work in sports. And they don't actually understand that a a lot of it is is logistics that that they don't get from just from the outside. And, And I think that's one of the reasons why trying to get in when you're about 30 years old and you're looking for a middle management position, it's really hard to do because you just don't get how the industry works. And so I sometimes feel that the only entry points for into sports is either right at the bottom, so when you're really young, 
similar to the, the lucky opportunity I had when I was that young, or right at the top, like if you transitioned a top C level uh, position into sports, and even that's unlikely because people grow up in the sports industry and, uh, and it's a very tight knit community in many ways. So I think it's absolutely critical when we look at sports as a fan, we don't actually get what's going on behind the scenes. You know, we see, a, you know, so we both, it's great to hear that you work for Sky, both worked in TV, um, not on the screen, but behind the scenes. And uh, you get what's needed to get the OB van there and the reporter in place and the uplink video and then the downlink into people's homes. People don't know that. And if you get that process, you really understand a lot about how sports ticks and what and how organizations, any sports association has to link with its customers and its, uh, and its viewers and its fans. I think it's critical. Before we talk about your experience at Redwood, I want to go back to something you did say right from the get-go is finding a role that suits you because you said your first one wasn't your cup of tea. So just for the listeners who are starting out, could you just explain that phrase in a bit more detail? Did you put a plan in place? Was it focusing on your strengths? So just paint the picture of that saying. I know it's overused, but I think it's so important because when you find what your thing is, things create that positive domino effect. So I just would love to emphasize that point, please. Well, let's let's take something right from the start that there was no major plan in place. Definitely not for me. And I think that a lot of people expect, you know, it's an old interview question. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? I think it's the most ridiculous interview question ever. And thank, thankfully, people don't use that much anymore, because if anything, the world has taught us in the in the recent past is we just don't know. And so you've got to go with what feels right for you today. And you may hit walls on the way and you may actually find out that what you thought was right for you when I was 20, you know, it's not actually right for me when I'm 25. And that learning process actually builds us as people. So to, if anyone thinks that I had it all planned out at the beginning, what I was going to do, I mean, we always say we can map our careers backwards. We can't do it forwards. Um, and so I didn't have this great grandiose plan of how to work and become, uh, you know, have a great career in the sports industry. I just went with what felt right. Now, I know that sounds a bit cheesy, maybe, but I think that's all I did. Didn't really overplan it. Went with jobs that felt right. That job that didn't work out for me in Gibraltar, it felt right at the time, and I'm actually very thankful for it. It's just the type of work in that marketing role didn't suit me. It didn't suit my character. I I didn't really believe in it that much and trying to market something that, you know, this just wasn't me. Um, And I I learned later on, for example, through Redwood, that I'm actually very analytical. I never knew that before. So sometimes you discover things about yourself along your journey. And so I discovered that I I can fragment a sport down pretty well. I didn't know that before I actually tried it. Um, And so you discover things, you gain skills, and then you learn more stuff, and then you get to the next thing. And then you turn around and look back at your journey, think, wow, I never knew that was going to happen. It relates to that Steve Jobs quote, you know, looking at the dots backwards and forwards, which I think is a really important point. And just touching on your 22 years, I'm just curious of what real core skills, I know you said you discovered that analytical skill set of yours and strategy. I've sort of seen your profile, like strategy has been a key theme of that's helped you in that business environment, but what other qualities have supported you reflecting from those last 22 years? And I won't mention your age, but like, I bet you've learned a lot with those couple of decades. I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm proud of it. I, I, don't mind. I think, look, I, I, I'll say it. I'm almost 47. My 40s have been better than my 30s. My 30s were better than my 20s, you know, and uh, I'm looking forward to my 50s as well. So that's what it's all about. <laughs> as long as I'm healthy. But I think that what I've learned, um, first of all, I, I've learned that I'm uh, one of the strengths I've had that has really helped me along the way is my ability to change and adapt. And the market constantly changes. And if we're thinking about leading a business, we have to think, okay, what we thought and what actually we were providing into a market a year or two ago might not be what the market needs now. You know, generations change as well. Technology, technology improves. You can provide something upgraded. So constantly reevaluating who you are as a business and, and what you can give and what, how you can improve is critical. And I love that. I'm, I'm never sitting still. I'm you know, and sometimes it's a bit to my de- detriment. I never seem to rest, but uh, but I like that about me. And I think that it really helped. I remember sitting in a board meeting once and uh, we were in a business. I was leading that a business that was really a bit of a roller coaster. And I was under the cost a little bit. And one of the other board members said, says, oh, but hang on, Daniel, you said you just said this. And then six months ago at the last board meeting, you said that. And I was like, I was like, oh my God, am I contradicting myself? And then I caught myself. I said, no, hang on. That's right. Six months has moved on, the market's moved on, and what I'm saying now is my new renewed sentiment about it. 
And not everyone sees that. They look at documents and they look at plans. They think, well, we planned this two years ago. Surely it can't change, but it can. The only thing I believe that should stay constant are your core values, both as a person and a business. But strategy has to change. You need to strategically plan for 18 months for sure. But you can review it all the time. And then you have to think where to now. And I think the ability to adapt and change is something that I'm inherently good at. Um, and that's really served me, especially when you think about trying to set up a business from scratch. You need to be able to change a lot. Um, and the other thing I think that, um, uh, that I've learned along the way, um, especially about managing businesses, I see businesses, I see the world in many ways as a bit of a puzzle. And all a business is, is putting a puzzle together. You've got, a, you've got two major things that you've got to get right or as, as right as you possibly can. And one is trying to get the best, shiniest pieces you can. So those could be your departments or even, right, I'll tell you what, let's think about it as your people. You've got to get the best people you can for the, for the job. And then, no less important, even probably more important than that, is you've got to put them together correctly. And in fact, that's more important, without a doubt. I've seen businesses with absolute rock stars, but because of mismanagement, they weren't actually connecting together. Like, this guy didn't know where his job ended and her job started and, and things were falling between the cracks and process is absolutely key. And, and by getting the pieces built correctly and interlocking correctly, that's when businesses can fly. So what's the first step? Is it getting that vision and value set of the company first, then building those other pieces together? You've got me really curious now, but I love your metaphor, but where is the first step that builds that foundation? Uh, if that makes sense. Okay, so really understanding, and this is a big mistake I made in my first uh, business that I set up, which was a huge failure. Uh, that was before I moved to Israel. That was in 98. And I learned so much from that. I mean, I got everything wrong. And the major thing I got wrong was I didn't really validate that what I was selling was actually in demand and certainly not the price I was selling. It doesn't really matter what the business was. It was activities for children in tourist destinations. It has nothing to do with sport, even though we did sporty stuff as well. But I, I completely didn't validate um, the, the need, the market need. And business is all about meeting a, a, a need from consumers. And I see a lot of startups as well that come from investment. They haven't run through that validation. They imagine in their mind, like I did when I was 24 with that failure, is that, oh, surely people need this. And then they run ahead and try and build something. And then when it fails, they realize, well, people didn't actually need it, just like I did. So the first thing is just really not, not basically drinking your own Kool-Aid, you know, not uh, listening to your own uh, nonsense in your head, getting it validated and saying, yeah, does the world actually need this? Um, because not every idea is a good idea. And so that's the first thing. And if you've got something that is in demand, then trying to get the relevant pieces in place. So, so what I mean by that is you've got to think, you know, just to use a, a business buzzword, what are the critical success factors, okay? But I, I do like that buzzword because I think every business, you've got to think, what do I need to get absolutely right in this business for it to be a success? And those critical success factors are different in every single business. So if I want to build um, you know, a sports data delivery company like Redwood, I need to gather the right data. That's absolutely critical. I need to process the data correctly and I need to deliver the data correctly. Okay, so I need to hold that data. I need security is a massive part of it. So you think, what are the blocks that are so critical to get right? So you've got to focus on those and put relevant people in charge of those. And so you've got an overall need, the critical success factors, and then your strategy of how to deploy. I think that's an, an overall long answer for <laughs> your question. No, it's not. I hope people are taking notes and grateful for that reply. And just tapping into, you know, that new discovery skill of like data and strategy. Out of interest, how do you look at a piece of data now? Because we're in a world now where everything's data driven. And I'm just curious when I speak to leaders like yourself who have to make big decisions, may I ask how you see a piece of data and then make an effective decision after it? Um, can we use Redwood as a sort of simple example of Can do for sure. Not just if that's cool, just more how you make decisions through data if that makes sense. Sure. I mean, the important thing to, to realize is that um, data in some form or another has been around forever. Way before digital digital world, data is information. So, you know, maybe decades ago I'd rely on my neighbor telling me where the best place to buy shoes are. You know, just off the top of my head, think of something. Now that data could be completely rubbish but that was what i had so in a more technological digital world you can go online and check places 
and then take it to the next level, you've got places with reviews from external people. So you, are, you get better improved data all the time to know where I can actually buy shoes correctly. So, but data has been around for, for forever as a basis for making decisions. Um, and it's just, the key thing here is understanding how can I actually get the best data ingested in my decision-making process at the beginning. And in the world of football, let's take football. And this is what really irked me right at the beginning is that so many decisions in a multi-billion dollar business like football are being made um, back in the day, things have improved a long way, of course, are being made on gut feelings, on some agent saying, this is the kid you need to buy. You know, someone will see someone score two goals in an under 20 World Cup and think he's brilliant, let's $20 million. I mean, it's mad when you think about it. There's no real due diligence here. There's no real use of good data to make a better decision. A club spending $20 million for crying out loud, you know, spend it based on it better information. And that's one of the things that, that Redwood and, and other companies in the space come to provide. And so how do you know that the data is actually better? Because, you know, the user, if you're selling this to a club, it's like, well, I, I get the data and let's say I believe the marketing blurb of the company, so I get it and I use that. But there's a big difference between data that is statistically viable and data that is basically just information. So there's a lot of, a lot of companies call themselves statistics companies. They're not actually statistics companies. Um, they're just giving you information. And then it's up to you whether you listen to that or you don't. Um, and we're getting a bit, you know, down into. Oh, we are nitty nitty gritty. I love it. And just quickly, with regards to that boardroom experience of that six month period, I know we're going back in the past, but can you remember a moment when it was data that changed that second decision because it was six months on, or was it just how you know industry changes? I'm just curious on that point. So from that point of view, it's it's market data. Let's say so that's happened to me a number of times. Is that you try and build, you're building a business to, to sell into a market, whatever it is. And, um, and you do your research to say, right, how am I? So when building sports betting platforms for emerging markets, so you'll look at, let's say, the Latin American market, for example, and you'll get, there's lots of stuff online that you can get information about how people interact, um, how they can bet, how they can't bet, the regulatory infrastructure, everything. And then when you actually deal with it, you'll get renewed information. So that's, again, data in order to build your business more correctly. Um, and meet your customers' needs better, which is why local knowledge in any business, I think, is critical. Um, in the sports betting industry is, is a great example because the US market, which has opened up uh, onshore in the last three years, four years, uh, is hugely different to the African market, which is a completely different uh, animal, really. And you can't imagine you can take the same product from the US into Africa and it will work. So how do you, if you want to penetrate the African market, you have to go in understand how it works, understand who are the major players, how the regulatory framework works, what sort of products work, what products don't work. And uh, this is just information gathering at the beginning. But as I said, there's good data, there's useless data. You've got to know how to sift through it. Just touching on one thing you've just sparked now, and it's something I've had on my podcast as a bit of a theme, as an important factor of work in the sports industry. How important is it to be mindful of culture? You just mentioned them with the American market, African market, but from your experience, how important is this to be mindful with the people you work with around the world? You're talking about the, like people within the business or, or? Or culture. Just, just, I just think when I've interviewed people in Australia, people in Singapore, I've just always learned that culture is a factor of, let's say, the use of our language. It's just being mindful that work in this industry may work in the UK. It may not work in the United States, but I've always come down to how we present ourselves, but also the language we use in different areas you work around the world. I'm just curious from your experience, like you're from Israel and I bet things are a bit differently done yeah. <laughs> from the UK. So I'm just curious of your experience of being mindful of culture when working in the sports industry. So in any industry, in any industry, it's hugely important. In sports, you could say that we're lucky in sports because we have the sport to connect us. And that's one of the most beautiful things about sport is that it unifies people, you know, it, it, we all get on a, whether we're playing, let's say we're all playing a game of football together, then all of a sudden it doesn't matter where you're from. Uh, it's interesting rather than a problem, which is a beautiful thing, you know, in a world where we should be embracing diversity and understanding the strength in that football, you know, I always go back to football because it's my favorite sport is beautiful at doing that. You know, we're, we're just uniting on the field of play. Now in a sports, in the sports industry, Anyone who works in the sports industry is, I, there's very few people I know who don't love sport, who work in the sports industry. It just doesn't make sense. 
And so we're all united by that passion. So in some ways, we have a culture inbuilt within the sports industry that allows us to, to uh, go forward together. But generally, understanding the cultural differences between us is, is unbelievably important. I mean, I've been very, very fortunate to come from one, a very diverse background. I've also lived in five different countries and I've worked with many, many more. And I've found sometimes people who, like a, a tech team in Kiev for, for a few years. And, um, and the way the Ukrainians work and deliver is very, very different to the way Israelis would, for example. And sometimes I'd see them talking to each other, two teams, one an Israeli team, the Ukrainian team, and they're both speaking the same language, English, but they're not speaking the same language. And I sometimes have to translate. No, that's not what he meant. That's, this is what he meant. And it's only because I've got a bit of an edge on other people because of having lived and interacted with so many different people that uh, you know, communication and understanding what, the, you know, there's lots of gags online, what the British actually say and what they really mean, stuff like that, you know, I mean, uh, you've, you must have seen this. It's so true. You know, you've got to understand what you've got to read between the lines. And that's the difference in culture between us. And so trying to make it um, not a limitation, but rather a strength, because what British people are good at is not what Ukrainians are good at. It's not what Israelis are good at, you know. And so you've got to try and take the best of everyone and combine it together. But you'll only do it if people understand what the other person is really saying. Absolutely. I'm going to state, state the obvious question here, but I think I'd like to just say that to my listeners, particularly people starting out, like looking back the 22 years, how have your communication skills developed over that period of time? Well, you know, obviously uh, experience is, is a huge factor. I mean, it's, um, I sometimes actually ask myself, what am I good at? And I, I can't come up with many answers, but communication is, is I think, one. I'm, I'm, I'm a good communicator. Uh, I don't think I'm actually very good at much else, <laughs> to be honest. And, uh, uh, but you know what? That's I'm, I'm blessed to have that skill. Um, but without a doubt, when you get experience and you deal with, again, it's all about dealing with different people. So you get out of your comfort zone and you and you enlarge your comfort zone. I'm now comfortable speaking to it doesn't matter who, really. Um, and that's a blessing. It's, and it's a, it's a real strength as well. Um, so without a doubt, you know, the more you do it, the more you accept that I'm going to go and speak to a, someone who comes from a totally different culture, I'm going to interact with them. If you do that, you will learn 100%. May I ask what you learn in a boardroom experience than maybe in a business meeting? Because there's a lot of people who are like, and I think it's great that they're sort of job shadowing people in the boardroom because it's just a different experience. Is there a different experience from a communication standpoint? I'm curious. That's an interesting question. Um, I would say there probably is, but there shouldn't be, okay? Because like every meeting, whether it's boardroom level or departmental level or whatever, it should all be, what's our objective in this meeting? What are we trying to achieve here? Are there relevant people in the room? Let's talk and let's get some results. That's the same in, in any meeting. I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but that should be the same in every meeting. I think where it's unfortunately different is where you've got companies where there's a big political play. So where maybe people have different agendas because they're in a certain position or whatever. And that's where companies can, can become weak is if people have um, individual agendas which are not aligned with what the company needs. You know, that, it, for me, it's all about alignment. You get beautiful things can happen when you've got um, people in the company whose own personal ambitions align with what the company's trying to do. And then everyone's pulling together in the same direction. It's great because everyone needs their personal ambition. And, uh, you know, you shouldn't say, I don't care what your individual agenda is. You're going to do exactly what this company needs. It's ridiculous. I, when I hire people, especially at the senior level, I want to know what their individual agenda is. I want to know what do you want to achieve in your life? And I would much quicker take someone who is slightly less um, skilled, let's say, but what he wants to achieve really sits hand in glove with what the company's trying to achieve. Because then I know that we're pulling in the same direction and he can gain the skills. But someone who has the skills but doesn't have the right agenda, you won't be able to get that. So it's so I think that, again, another ridiculously long answer for a very simple question, probably. <laughs> no, it's not. No, I'm going to add on to this. With regards to that alignment, like I'm digging deep for the listeners here. With that alignment, do you mean, like, I can tell what you're saying, it's all about getting people the right character, right attitude and confidence but you're saying the negative side is having that, I call it like a negative ego. Is that what you mean about where there's that not, no disconnect, if that makes sense? Well, it's, and, and it's not one size fits all. You know, it, I'm not talking about things that are, that should be the same. Like, so everyone should have a positive attitude, et cetera, et cetera. But if I'm looking for someone whose role in their 
let's say in their tech day-to-day -day job, is gonna mean that they have to love sitting down hours with their headphones on and cope uh, and create product and really get into the nitty gritty, okay? So, and there are developers who love that and there are developers who wanna think in a different way. That's just one example of alignment on aptitude, let's say. So, you know, someone, I don't want someone who's coming for a job just because he's um, got a CV that has a, has a brilliant engineer, doesn't mean he's the right engineer for us. Do you see what I mean? Um, that's an idea. And then, but what I was talking about before was more about, you know, their own personal goals in life. Like uh, if I know in an interview and I feel, you know, things have, have moved on a lot in the last 20 years. I feel like some of the questions I've asked at interview not allowed to ask anymore. You're not supposed to ask anymore about personal stuff. I think it's crazy. You know, how, how am I going to know if this guy's a good fit if I don't know what he wants to achieve himself in his life? If, if I'm talking to someone and he says, look, I'm really looking to, to live abroad and work abroad. And I know I'm building up a core team in a, the city that he lives in. I know that his aims in life are not matched with what we want to do. So he'll always be trying to get out. You know, so this is why trying to understand And if someone says, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking to settle down here with my family and build a, you know, I lived in Dublin. I had this with a great CTO I had in Kiev. You know, he, he lived in Dublin. He worked for Google. He lived in California. He was working for Facebook. And he came back to Kiev, Ukraine. He goes, now I want to just settle down here. Well, first of all, that's brilliant. That's what I want to hear because that's what I'm trying to set up here. I'm not looking to relocate him somewhere else. And then understanding strategically how he thinks and does that align with strategically how I want my CTO to think. It all comes back to alignment, basically, always. I love it. And I haven't really heard this sort of point of view, which, as I said to you before we started this, I've been really excited. And I want to just tap into your 18 years at Redwood, particularly the last eight years where you're not CEO, because I, I love when businesses change and basically yourself making the big decision, not step down, that's the wrong phrase. But I mean, what inspired you to make that decision? And as you say, there's something better than you. I think to me, that's just as, that's like silent leadership when you know there's somebody there who can make the company thrive better. So I, I love to reflect on that point. That's cool. But, so the reality of what actually happened is not nearly as, uh, as complimentary to myself as you make it out. So what, when I look back on it, I really think that given where I was and where the company was, it would have been optimal if I had made that change in 2013 and not in 2015. You know, the company would have benefited if I'd have made, you know, and we're all clever in retrospect, of course, you know, it's very easy to be smart in retrospect. But um, but the reason I say that is that the trigger was not me going, who, uh, you know, Redwood needs something different and it's not me. And aren't I a great silent leader? And like, no, 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 not at all. <laughs> what happened was I got an offer to do something that really excited me and it forced me to sort of step back from the CEO role. So I look back and think if I hadn't got that offer, then would I have been leading Redwood in a, you know, not in a correct path as the CEO who took over? you know, took it forward and scaled up really, really well. Um, so I always think, you know, you should try and learn from your experiences. And, and so I say to myself, wow, I was lucky I got this offer and then went to, to build that second business, uh, which wasn't mine, I was building it for other people. And it was great. And I took it, you know, learned a hell of a lot from that. But from Redwood's point of view, I was lucky. And so I tried to learn from that. So what happened in 2020 was the business I was then the lead for, had, I, I was able to recognize now, this is like a pattern okay, I've now done this again. I've led it as far as I can go. And so that was a proactive decision where I sort of took a step back and someone else moved to the board and, and that was that. I'm going to put you on the spot now. How did you know it was the right time? Was it gut? Was it you, you, you've taken it? Like, I'm just curious. Like, it's, it's hard to pinpoint, I bet, but I'm just, I'm just intrigued. I think it's like, it's, I suppose a lot to do with gut, but our gut is driven by information again. So I think the fact is that I love a blank piece of paper. And that's what I got twice in my life with Redwood and with uh, this other business. And then created a business and it became profitable. You know, a lot of luck as well along the way. And then it's there, the money's coming in. And then you need to think, right, how do we then take it to the next level? That's like the, that inflection point where you think, okay, that's what we sort of like can label as scaling up, let's say, rather than startup. And I just know about myself that I'm skilled at taking something from zero to one, but taking it from one to a hundred, it's not my skill set. So other people are much, much better than I am. And uh, so I think that was it. It's just understanding that I've done my job. I've done that job, you know, now move to the board and, and I can advise and help and support 
the CEO in, in anything going forward. I'm going to ask another state of the obvious question, but you sparked it because it's what I sort of share when I go to universities and stuff. How important is it to do things that do excite you? Because I do think it's one of those me- personal metrics of whatever job or role we do, but it's not talked about enough. So, and I saw your eyes lit up when you said it was an excite, you know, exciting opportunity. So, reflecting now, how do you look at decisions of it, like an excitement meter? If that makes sense. So I think there's, there's a few ways to look at this. It's not actually that obvious an answer, I think. Um, uh, because especially with the way, I'm gonna sound a bit old now, <laughs> kids these days, but like the, <laughs> the way, the, one of the issues I see with you know, 20 year olds um, is that they, uh, you know, this is an issue that the world faces uh, across the board is that, and in the career path, they want instant gratification. They want, you know, to, to follow their passion and all this other nonsense. Sorry, I call it nonsense because, and I'm like, and I'm, I'm working something I'm hugely passionate about. But what you've got to realize is you become passionate about something when you work hard at it for a long time. You don't instantly just, you know, click with something and go, wow, I'm in an industry that I'm passionate about. You know, just as well as I do it, that when you work in, in sports TV, a lot of it is really boring logistical work. It's running tapes from A to B. It's putting cables down. It's like stuff that, this isn't my passion, but you do that and you work hard on it and then you realize you're part of a process that you see the end product, that football game on TV. It's like, wow. But you've got to get there. So my sort of advice for young kids is don't expect this to be like a, a magic bullet. You know, some people become passionate about something they never thought they'd be, they'd be passionate about. You know, I, the people who've made billions in like, uh, I don't know, construction work, they, they probably didn't, you know, weren't born going, I'm going to be a builder. I'm going to be really passionate about that. But they became passionate because they found something that they didn't realize before. So I think it is a bit more of a complex answer, but still it is critical that you are into what you're doing generally and you accept that in every single job, there will be boring bits because that's true about, about every job. There's no job ever and it would be a it would be a serious worry if there was because if life is always great it's it ceases to become great because that's just the standard do you see what i mean so you need life to be like that so that you can really appreciate the ups and because of the downs. so when you go through difficult periods in life i always say you should welcome it because it just it allows you to appreciate the upside then you know that the up is coming as well you know is it we're talking about philosophical things here and, and approach to life but i think it's to do with it it, it, it it all fits in with the same idea. Look, I'm going to give a real example. I love rocking the mic with my special guests, but when I have to edit my work and edit each podcast, it's twice as much time than the interview itself because I want to make it a great experience for the listener. So here's a heads up, everybody, if you're listening in, because um, you're right, it's that sort of grind behind the scenes. Wow. Like, there's so much more I want to touch on because the reason why I reached out to you, and if you don't mind, I always like to share to listeners how I reach out on a special guest. I actually saw a wonderful article of yours and actually you commented on somebody about like an investment side of things. I'm like, cool, I'm going to reach out Daniel straight away because honestly, I haven't had like an investor on the podcast. And without a doubt, without investors, there wouldn't be where the sports industry is today. So I'm curious on one thing. You said you've been in it for three years in the sport tech of investment side. But may I ask, could we talk about like having like a great investment mindset? Because I think when we get into the industry starting out, it's more like employing, uh, like an employer's mindset in a way. My ask when was the moment when maybe a business experience kicked in as well, when I say this, but how important is it to have like an investment mindset, not just in sport, but just, you know, data in our lives, you know, it's vital nowadays, like different revenue streams. Personally, I'm learning that now, like it's more vital because of the pandemic. So it's, I've been doing a lot of reading on the importance of investments, but without sort of following the shiny object, which you mentioned earlier, let's say NFTs, everybody's sort of drawn to it without taking a step back and learning the fundamentals of investment. So I'm just curious of your experience as an investor, but particularly from a mindset standpoint. So if we try and define what is it to have an investor mindset, and again, you know, I'm relatively new, but I work with a lot of uh, VCs um, uh, and, and learn a lot from these people as well. I think to have an investor mindset is, and this is why one thing that I found difficult at the beginning is to actually detach yourself from the emotion of the founder. And I'm a founder, I'm an entrepreneur in my heart, much more than an investor. So I had to work hard to sort of take myself out of that and not get swept away with every founder that I connected with. You know, you've just got to try and be a little bit 
colder, a little bit more emotionless about it. And in sports, it's difficult because we're connected by our emotion to it. So you've got to take a step back and say, right, I'm going to fragment it. Fragmenting is, is really important as an investor. Where's the uh, value add here? Are the team correct? Do they have the tools? What's the value of this really, instead of just what's happened in the VC world over the last couple of years? I mean, valuations are just sort of plucked out of thin air sometimes. Um, and being able to analytically challenge businesses is really, really important. And sometimes as a founder, you know, it, it's all about balance, but you need, you need to sometimes as a founder be the opposite. You need to believe so much um, and not to constantly have these naysayers in your head, you know, because otherwise you'll never do anything. I mean, it's, it's not black and white, you know, it's a, it's a percentage chance. And in sports, the majority of startups will fail. The, the vast majority of startups will fail. Um, and if you're a founder in sports, you should know that, but not let it affect you. That's not easy. You know, I get, I, I asked, a, I asked a one founder recently, I said, what do you think the percentage chance? I like asking this question as a person on the spot. So what do you think the percentage chance of your business is of failing? And the response I got from one guy was no chance, which is too blind, you know? So I don't want too blind, but I also don't want, eh, it's probably 95%. I don't really have much of an option. You know, then how's this guy going to get out of bed and think he's really going to make it? Got to find some sort of, you know, so a founder's mindset, an entrepreneurial mindset, which is much more my nature, is believing, really believing it, sometimes against all odds. Investor mindset has to be not to believe in many ways, you know, because you really got to pick and choose, knowing that the majority of startups will fail. So it's not like, wow, I love this, put some money into it. So it's a bit counterintuitive for someone like me, which is why I know that I'm not, I wear the investor hat at the moment, but I'm not in my, you know, my, uh, my dharma, if you like, uh, an investor, I'm much more an entrepreneur, and I hope to be doing that again. In fact, I've got a couple of ideas already. Uh, but being an investor has definitely helped me um, develop that side of the, of the character, which is, I think is really, really important. Ah, and the other thing I will say as well is what I've learned is that just because an investor does that, and I want founders to know this as well, just because an investor says no, it doesn't mean he doesn't think that you've got a good chance of succeeding. It just he means, it means it's not right for him. Because every investor, it's really important to have your own thesis of what you're going to invest in. And that way it keeps you very, very focused. So I'll get things, even sports related, but they're more in the sort of health and wellness sector, which I understand much less about. And I'll say, well, that looks like a really, really good idea, but it's not for me. Thank you. And it doesn't mean I don't believe in you. I think actually that's a really good idea. And I'd love to introduce you to someone who that is part of his investment thesis, but it's not for me. And for founders, trying to keep good relationships with good investors is really important. It's not like a black or white thing. You know, you never know that person might come back in a different way, different guys. So this is something I think that's very important as an investor to keep in mind and as a founder to keep in mind as well. So again, just to emphasize your point, how important is that feedback? I know you talked about relationship building, which is important, but reflecting of what you've just said, like how important is feedback in general between those two relationships? between founders and investors Correct. oh so people need to understand and a lot of people don't realize this as well they think i'm going to go and go out and raise money and then the guy's going to give me money and yeah he might ask for a board seat but i'm not going to hear from him much or whatever even if you don't hear from him much which is often the preferred state to be honest for both founder and investor a lot of founders like to get on with it they don't want to have someone sitting there reviewing all the time but it's still a long-term marriage and that's what people have to understand if you've got someone who has shares in your company then he or she is married. And that's why picking the right investor for you is, is critical. A lot of, I've seen unfortunate scenarios where companies break down just because there's, and again, it comes back to alignment because there's been a lack of alignment between an investor and a founder and things have just broken down. Um, so trying to get the right investor for you as a founder is really, really important. And the same as an investor, trying to get the right founders who suit you from a character perspective. You know, you, you're gonna work with people. You get to a certain age where you go, I'm there. I go, I just want to work with people I get on with. I mean, it sounds obvious, but it's critical. It's really critical. Um, because when you get on with people, then it's not, oh God, I'm checking my watch. I'm working, I'm enjoying it. You know, people sometimes say to me, Danny, you work very hard. I'm like, I actually don't feel that. I work a lot. I work a lot. I don't work hard, or at least I don't feel it. And whether that's on investment side or other things. And so understanding that this is not just a thanks, I've raised a million dollars, he's put it in the bank. Cheerio, doesn't work like that. This is a marriage and you've got to find the right people that you're going to want to be with for the long term. Okay, one more, because this has got 
my thoughts flowing even more. You said about it's important for the founder with the investments, like a marriage relationship, but with regards to that communication process of that reviewing, what would be your ballpark time frame? Is it like once a month reviewing with the investor or quarterly? Like from your experience, what made you comfortable as a founder and now as an investor? Because I put this way, the clients, when I work with them, I try and do like a biannual review going, this is what I've done, just keep in check. And it, it means they haven't got questions there end, which they haven't told me, but it sort of keeps everything in check. So, I, and that's how I work with clients, but I'm just curious with that side of things between an investor and a founder. So generally, I think if, if the founder, let's, let's give him a label as CEO of the company and the CEO is charged with, you know, taking the reins and making things happen. Okay? And I think that between the CEO, instead of saying founder invest, I'm going to say CEO and his board and his shareholders, okay, who he's accountable to. I think that even in early stage startups, it should be once every quarter, not more, because things do take time. And, and giving it three months allows a, a CEO to say to the board, this is what I'm going to plan for the next three months. And then he gets to the next board meeting, go, let's see if I've managed to do that. And now let's see what I'm planning for the next three months. Saying every month is just too quick. I mean, time flies like that. So I just think that a quarterly update for a board is, is healthy. Um, and that's if it's a one-way flow. There are, you know, between investors and founders, you might have actually have strategic investors who want to be more involved and you want them to be more involved because they can open doors for you. And that's, but that's not what I'm talking about in the update. That's because he's actually involved in the business. He can, uh, you know, take things forward. I mean, I had, I'm invested in one uh, company in the horse race betting space in the US where I was so involved, I became a co-founder. I said, yeah, I said it's like, um, I was the major investor in, in this early safe round. And I was, I love the founder. We get on so well and I was working on it a lot. And I thought, you know what, this is, that's actually, it's not really investor anymore. It's more co-founder. And so I'm now upgrading myself to co-founder just because of the amount of time. Um, so th those things are possible as well. But, the simple answer is I think that once a quarter is perfect for a founder or a CEO to report to his shareholders, this is the state of the business and this is what I'm doing in the upcoming period. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing, Daniel. Out of interest now, like reflecting, what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey looking back right now? Ooh, wow, so much. Uh, what have I enjoyed the most? I think the most satisfying thing, um, and we sort of touched on it a bit before, is when you're involved. And even if you're involved in a small way, so when I was working uh, in broadcast, uh, so I, one stage I was responsible for getting um, the ENG crews and the reporter on pitch and the OB van with the uplink, whatever. And then you sit back at home and actually watch that report, your reporter in a different country doing that. It's like, ah, oh, it's just, I was, I did that. <laughs> you know, that's, it's very satisfying. And that's even just from a pure logistical production level. And the same satisfaction is if you're leading a business where all of a sudden you deliver a platform after you know, nine months uh, development work, and all of a sudden you see, you go into the back end and you see users coming in and actually interacting with your platform. I mean, that's, that's hugely satisfying, hugely satisfying. Um, so I've loved that. And I've also loved the fact that sports and startup in sports are often a really tough roller coaster. And I actually love that. I, I haven't had the roller coaster for about three years. I really miss it, to be honest. I miss that sort of, yay, we've got the big up now. We've got a huge milestone we've hit. And then, oh my God, what are we doing? It's a crisis. I love that. I love both sides of it, you know, uh, which might sound. How weird. do you sleep? No, I'm just <laughs> curious. <laughs> Not much. Not much. <laughs> okay. Well, this leads really well with my inspirational question we did adjust it because you weren't happy with the person which is cool because I think what you've just said about the roller coaster I think it's a really important factor in not just running a business but also career development over time like out of interest what method in a way internally has supported you with regards to adversity all those ups and downs like how do you process it so the listener could apply that tool or idea or strategy after they listen to this conversation like what would be that one method dealing with adversity Exactly. Yeah, particularly yeah. with those ups and downs. So, so I've developed a bit of a tool specifically through a, a habit. I, I noticed I was doing it anyway. It all starts with accepting that's part of life. You know, people who, who, who just think that it should all be easy and, um, you know, and every time it's like, oh, 
God, I can't believe this is always happening. Those are the sort of people who say, I can't believe this is always happening to me. It's like, well, it's not always happening to you. It just happens. It's life. You know, we all have ups and downs. So it starts off with just understanding that that is the way life goes. Okay. And so when you're in that down, I, I've developed this sort of thing that I force myself to do to overcome them quicker or, or deal with it quicker in my mind, at least. It's first of all, I take a zoom out to remind myself. Like, so when you're in the down, you, you, everything looks black. You feel like you're in a hole and whatever. If you zoom out and then you remember that curve, okay, that I was talking about before, and it at least refreshes that, your mind to, okay, at least I know that it's just part of that journey, okay? So that, first of all, calms me down. Because when you're in, the, in that dip, you just think everything's black. So just first of all, understanding that it's just a dip is really critical to calm yourself down. And then, so you've zoomed out to do that, and then zoom right back in. And what do I mean by that is when things are bleak, when you think too far ahead, it becomes even darker. When you say, oh my God, how are we going to make our, uh, you know, our budgets for next year? Um, oh my God, how are we going to, you know, just try and shorten the journey. The, the more the crisis, just shorten the steps. So zoom right in and say, how do I do the things today, only today, as well as I possibly can? That's it. And deliberately trying to ignore the unknowns of next year, next month even. Because the unknowns of next month, the, the questions that have no answers, just increase that darkness around us. You just got to shut it out. How do I deal with today? Today is all I can see. I want to make today better for my business, for myself, whatever. How do I do that? And if you, and even when I've been in really dark moments, it's like even trying, how do I make the next hour <laughs> you know, better? The further you zoom in, the, the easier it gets. You're taking the weight off your shoulders and just very logically, if I make today better, if I've succeeded in making today better, I've given tomorrow a better chance of being better. Okay. And if I know that, hmm, all right. And then if tomorrow's better, I've given the next day a better chance of there. And then when you zoom out, you realize you've given yourself a better chance of getting on that upside quicker. And you're creating that compound effect as well with like bite-sized bits. Awesome. Wow. I hope you've taken notes and listened to that, everybody. Look, Daniel, I've so much enjoyed this conversation. Out of interest, how can people interact with you online? Like, where's the best place to go? LinkedIn. I'm not on any other social media other than LinkedIn. Um, happy to connect and happy to talk to people. Always. That's amazing. To all the listeners listening in, that LinkedIn link will be in my blog with regards to this podcast chat. Daniel, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Real pleasure. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. My goodness, what a podcast experience. And I really do hope you enjoyed Daniel's podcast just now. For me, it was one of those podcasts that I could have gone on for another hour, literally. It was that so easygoing. It flowed. And with regards to today's podcast topic, I hope you got a better understanding with regards to the qualities of being an investor in the sports industry from a mindset perspective, from a data perspective in making decisions. But I just want to go back right at the beginning of Daniel's podcast and sports career journey that he did start right from the bottom. And I think this is really key for me to highlight in this review because when he started at the bottom working in TV production, gave him the foundation of knowledge and then eventually skill set. So if you're listening to this saying, Ed, I'm not going to be an investor, but maybe one day you will. Maybe over a period of time, you've accumulated that experience, you've built up experience in different aspects from a leadership standpoint. I think that is key. Being in the same position for a period of time, you know, with regards to being an investor, like he said, you do have to have a different approach, meaning without that emotion. And I think learning from Daniel and even myself when I'm going in the investor's role just in regards to personal investment and looking at income in a different mindset, you do have to like cut out that emotion um, and just think of the bit of the data and what's working with the information I have to make a quality decision, particularly where there's money on the line. Another area I want to review from this podcast chat, because we talked on so many different topics, is with regards to communication. Like Daniel said, it's one of his skills. But for me, what I enjoyed the most is how he simplifies his use of words in how to educate and communicate with us. Yeah, you the listener listening in right now. Daniel's skill in regards to simplifying with regards to meetings of, you know, really a boardroom meeting, a department meeting or a one-on-one -on -one interview 
should be simplistic in how we communicate to get the result or outcome we want from that connection with that human being or that group meeting. So that's another error I will even re-listen to myself in like making sure when I communicate with people online and in person that keeping it simple with your messaging will make your communication skills more effective without a doubt in the long run, particularly when working with people abroad, which was a really interesting conversation too. But without a doubt, right at the end, I really do hope you put in that tool that Daniel shared right at the end with regards to, you know, I would say more control those ups and downs with regards to how we approach it. Like he said, it's life. Having those down moments is life and it actually makes things fulfilling with the up moments. Very much the same that if you're doing a certain role in what you do in the sports industry or any industry in that matter, that you're going to have parts of the job you love and feel fulfilled and then there's part of the jobs that are really boring. He's spot on. And that's the beauty, having that up and down effect. But I hope you put that tool into practice with regards to your sports career development now and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Daniel said, when you gain experience and get out of your comfort zone, the more confident you get when working with different people around the world in sports 